from deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm Adam Schick. Gator greats have the ability to live on in our memories forever, but the best of the best have the chance to create new memories for themselves and fans by competing at the next level. This week, a number of former Florida football stars hope to have their names called in the NFL draft, while countless other Gator athletes will walk across the stage and graduate from the University of Florida, destined to go pro in a different walk of life. Today, we'll go player by player and delve into where the Gators' top NFL prospects might land with FloridaGators.com senior writer Scott Carter. We'll also reflect back on one of the most impressive careers in the history of Florida athletics as Gator Vision Shelby Granath sits down one last time with senior gymnast Bridget Sloan. And lest we get too nostalgic about the past, Florida baseball play-by-play voice Jeff Cardozo chats with head coach Kevin O'Sullivan ahead of a pivotal top 10 showdown with South Carolina. But first, while there's disagreement among experts as to where most of the Gators will get drafted, it's been a consensus opinion for years that Vernon Hargraves III had first-rounder written all over him. A pirate's life it could be, Scott Carter says, for the All-American cornerback. The Bucks at number nine still seem to be the favorite landing spot. You know, the Bucks need help in the secondary. He's rated by most as a top pure cornerback in this draft. And it, it just seems like a good fit. You know, he's from Tampa, played high school there. His family still lives there. So there's a, there's a lot of commodities that are known by the Bucks about Vernon Hargraves III. I'm sure it helps them during their evaluation process. Now, if he doesn't go to number nine at the Bucks, there's talk he falls, you know, maybe to the Raiders a few picks after that. I haven't really gleaned anything that, you know, he would fall way down into the first round. I think most people think he's going to be in the top half of the first round. But at this point, Adam, it still seems to me like if he goes in the top ten, it's going to be the Bucks at number nine. I don't expect him to go higher than that. But, uh, you know, we've seen some weird things so far with some trades and everything on this draft the past week or so. So, you know, we're not going to know for sure probably until, uh, what, Thursday. But at this point, I still think the Bucks number nine, that's where Hargraves is most likely to land. An interesting case is Jonathan Board. Here's a guy who came back for his senior year to try to improve his stock. And by all accounts, he did that but also still some questions just about where he fits in terms of a scheme. Yeah, you know, Bullard's faced those questions a lot, really, in his whole career. You know, at Florida, he came in as more of a defensive tackle, but then he was used at defensive end and really had more of his productive moments maybe at end. But he played both positions, inside and outside, during his UF career. In the NFL, you know, they love to target specific areas and specific skill sets, and that's the way they evaluate players. So, yeah, from what I uh, have read and listened to folks talk about John Bullard, they all like him as a football player. He has instincts, he has ability, and he's one of the guys, he's a good character guy to have in the locker room. So he's got a lot of upside there. If there is a downside with Bullard and maybe some question marks that some teams maybe will pass on him, it's where do you play him? I mean, there's a belief that he's not big enough and strong enough to be a consistent disruptor at tackle in NFL. Those guys usually are a little bit bigger than Bullard is. Yet, some belief that maybe he's not a pure speed edge guy. So... 
I've heard that maybe he fits best in a 3-4 scheme, maybe on the end. And yet a lot of NFL teams are getting away from a 3-4. There's not a lot that plays that scheme anymore. So it's going to be interesting. It's just going to be really a case of which team really values what Bullard brings to the table, who's done the most in-depth reports on him. You know, it only takes one team to like you, and he's going to find a team that likes him. But, you know, does he go into first? Does he go into second? Does he fall down to the third because of those question marks about where is he going to play? I don't know, but uh, he's certainly a, a guy that's intriguing, you know, if you have to make that decision if you're in one of those draft rooms. And it's going to be interesting to see where John lands. When you look at high character guys, Keanu Neal would be at the top of that list. He just nailed the interview process from everybody he talked to. The question then becomes, again, what can you do on the field? What are your thoughts on where he might land? Well, I think of all the Gators draft prospects, I think Keanu has probably helped himself the most. During the season, there was thinking that, you know, he's going to play in the NFL, but would he be a second rounder, a third rounder? Well, now there's talk that, you know, maybe he could even be a late first rounder. A couple of things that really benefit him is he's got an NFL safety's body. I mean, he's a big guy, wide shoulders, plays a very physical brand of football. And you mentioned the interview process. He's come off really well. I mean, Keanu's a smart guy, represents himself very well. It was interesting just to see him here at Florida, kid who came in and was playing behind some really talented players like Matt Elam and Josh Evans, who have obviously played NFL now for a few years. And then to see him kind of grow and kind of find his confidence and leadership role by the end of his junior season. And he's going to be a good player for somebody. Uh, He's one that has definitely helped himself through this process. Kelvin Taylor was coming off of a 1,000-yard season, decided to go early into the draft. It's been kind of a, a mixed bag when it comes to running backs. There have been high-profile busts like Trent Richardson, but then some other guys who proved to be diamonds in the rough that come later in the draft. So where does Kelvin Taylor fit into that puzzle? You know, he's always going to be compared to his father. It's just natural. His dad, Fred, was a really big physical running back, taller than Kelvin, uh, had some more weight on him. One advantage Kelvin has, and this is where he really gets high grades, he's a quick cutter. He finds a hole, and he plays off of his blocks well. I look at him as maybe a mid-round pick or even later. Uh, He improved a lot at Florida in terms of those things that running back is asked to do away from carrying the ball in terms of blocking, uh, just understanding the offense, a more developed offensive system. And he's around the game his whole life. So he's got those instincts that these NFL teams look for. But he's going to be a guy to watch probably Friday and Saturday during the draft. Uh, you're right. Running backs are pretty hard to judge in the draft. Sometimes you see guys who you think can't miss prospect and they don't do much in the NFL. And then we've seen a lot of players who you didn't really follow too much in college and had really good careers. So I think Kevin, is his big thing is just going to get in there and find a spot as a situational back, perhaps used as a good third uh, down back. You know, those are roles that running backs his size usually tend to fill in the NFL. A couple of guys who both exhausted their eligibility and did so in large part because of injuries are Antonio Morrison and Jake McGee. They've proven they can play, but there are some concerns health-wise because of what happened to them in college. So what's the outlook for the two of them? Well, both are interesting because you're right. Jake McGee, you know, he broke his leg when he first came to Florida in this first game here. He had to sit out the 2014 season, came back and had a nice senior year in Jim McElwain's first year at Florida. Productive player, great hands, great third down receiver. I don't remember really McGee dropping any pass that he should have caught last year. So he's a valuable weapon in that regard. He's got good size, not blow away speed, but he's a guy that you would think would have a home in the NFL. 
Then Antonio Morrison, you know, this is a, a guy, and you hear NFL people talk about him all the time in this way. He's just a football player. What they mean by that, they mean that, you know, he's he doesn't have all the perfect dimensions or perfect skill set or perfect measurables the NFL linebackers have, but maybe a guy who gets drafted and just sticks around just by sheer willpower and determination because he loves the game, he's a scrapper. You know, I would think mid to late round for each. Character questions often dominate this draft process. When you know what a guy can do physically, but you wonder about the unmeasurables, so to speak. Two former Gators who factor into that, Alex McAllister and Demarcus Robinson. No question, they're talented, but a lot of people are wondering, can they be trusted because of some of their issues here at Florida? Yeah, I mean, just the way we talked about Antonio Morrison's knee, how teams will look at that. I'm sure they've already asked all those tough questions about why were you suspended some at Florida? You know, why did McAllister's career kind of end the way it did at Florida? On film, both guys are going to be impressive. They're going to have those measurables. They're going to run good times in the 40. You know, they made some plays at Florida. Both have a knack for making the big play. No question, I think each guy has a talent to play in the NFL. It's just going to be, again, a matter of which team feels most comfortable and uh, you know both guys were at pro day uh, last month and uh, they answered some of those questions and just from the vibe from them I mean they feel pretty comfortable with the way the process has gone for them but again you just never know until you hear your name called and if they hear it you know both guys uh, I'm sure will be overjoyed it's something they've been working on for a long time but at the same time if neither does get drafted I would still expect them to for certainly be invited to some kind of rookie camp and have an opportunity to make a team. While certain rivals like Florida State and Georgia are significant across the Gator Nation, some sports also develop unique rivalries for themselves, including Florida-Kentucky in basketball and Florida-Alabama in softball. When it comes to baseball, Florida and South Carolina have become natural rivals during Kevin O'Sullivan's tenure thanks to their battles for SEC supremacy and in Omaha. As the top-ranked team in the nation travels to Columbia to take on the Gamecocks, Jeff Cardozo asked the skipper how he feels about his club as they head toward the home stretch. Well, we've been fairly consistent throughout the year. We've had a couple of hiccups along the way, a couple weekend series, but um, you know we've been just about in every game. You know, even our losses have been close games, other than the one I think against uh, Mississippi State on that Saturday. But um, other than that, we've been pretty clean and pretty consistent throughout the year. And I think coming off the best weekend we've had pitching wise, especially considering our starters, how deep they went. I think we gave up one run over three starts this weekend, and um, against a team that just come off beating um, you know South Carolina the week before so you know we're gonna have to continue to get better we've got you know a tough stretch ahead here I think nine of our last 12 conference games are going to be on the road Um, we're looking forward to the challenge and obviously you know this weekend would be the first of our last four series and um, against a very very good South Carolina team. Pitching has certainly rode you and Logan Shore has done something now that nobody else has has ever done I mean heck I was lucky to win like three starts in a row and he goes 13 in a row it's just uh, when you put that number in perspective and what he gives you week in and week out uh, it's pretty special it's like in the big leagues number one stars are hard to find and friday night guys in our league are hard to find he's been a mainstay at the top of our rotation for three years now and um, has done everything we've asked of him and more and he's always delivered when he's needed to obviously coming off a tough game on on thursday night and we rolled the dice a little bit with with sean anderson extending him a little bit 
you know, we needed Logan to go deep in the ballgame, and he threw a 101-pitch complete game. So it was great to see. Obviously, 13 consecutive wins is a tremendous feat, regardless of when you pitch on the weekend or a midweek starter or whatever. But, you know, to do that against everybody else's number one, and I think that streak started last year in the postseason. A lot of leverage starts, a lot of competitive pitches that need to be made over those 13 starts is remarkable. So I'm very, very proud of the way he's um, he's handled it and um, the most important thing is I feel really really good when he's on the mound he gives us a great chance to win every time out and that's what a Friday night guy does just gives you a chance I think you got to be pretty proud of uh, A.J. Puck too probably his best start against Georgia the tempo's much better you got him doing some different things and, and he looked really good so that's got to get him going well yeah I think his stuff at Arkansas was outstanding and maybe the extra rest after coming out of the Mississippi State game um, was probably good for him and I'll tell you what, I said this in the postgame on Thursday. I was extremely, extremely impressed with how both A.J. and Robert Tyler pitched because both of those guys are known for their electric arms, and it could have been very easy for both of those guys to go out there and try to overthrow and, and, and kind of lose their delivery and, and get caught up in a moment. But both guys were tremendous. They both pitched. They both kind of answered the bell, so to speak. And, you know, unfortunately for us, we fell short Thursday night. But if Robert Tyler pitches like that the rest of the year, he's going to give a lot of teams mm-hmm. fits. But, um, you know, A.J. was awesome. And this season quite hasn't been as smooth as maybe he's wanted. But the bottom line is this. If he gets hot at the end here, there's nobody going to remember what happened in February and March. And if he pitches like he did the other night, I'll take that all day, every day. You mentioned Thursday night, but you guys were able to bounce back Friday and score four early. I know you didn't have a lot of at-bats that you liked on Thursday. But to be able to do that, that says a lot about this team, too. I, th- I think moving forward, you guys have been through a lot of adversity and different things happening but to, to put up some runs early ha- had to please you yeah you know the, the baseball season is a marathon you know you play 56 regular season games and I think the thing about you know our situation is year in year out we always play one of the top two or three most difficult schedules in the country and along this season you're going to drop some games and there's going to be some times where there's going to be a gut check that your team has to answer to and you know our guys have answered pretty much every time they've needed to and um, obviously these last 12 games I know I keep talking about these last 12 but this is going to give us a tremendous amount of some toughness and we, we, we certainly should come together as we as we move forward. And for you guys to, to be in a league like this and, and know that week in and week out that, that a Georgia can take two out of three from South Carolina, Missouri can go in and beat somebody two out of three, even the teams that are sort of towards the bottom, what does that do for, for you guys, I guess, mentally for one and, and just physically with, with this 30-game grind? Well, let's just look at it. I mean, you got Tennessee who played really good this week. They beat Vanderbilt mm-hmm. at home two out of three after losing the first game. I'm watching that game on Sunday and Tennessee's swinging a bat a lot better. You know, Cox, the left-handed pitcher, came in and threw the ball as well, well as he did all year long. He, you know, he threw four, I think, on Saturday and came in and closed the door on Sunday. You know, so you look at a team like that, you look at Georgia beat South Carolina two out of three the week before. And I mean, really, you know, anybody can beat anybody in this league. And it's really not who you play, it's when you play them. I've always said that. And some of these teams are getting hot at the right time. And teams are trying to fight to get in the SEC tournament. Teams are trying to fight to put themselves in position to get into a regional and, and get in the postseason. So there's no gimmies. And you got to play well. And, you know, if you don't play well, you, you know, you got a chance to get beaten by anybody. Well, this weekend's opponent certainly no stranger for you know all the battles that you've had with South Carolina over the years. It's it's a great ballpark. They're going to have some great fans, so it's going to be a a tough challenge this weekend. Will be. I mean, there'll be a really good atmosphere, I'm sure, and you know I'm sure they're telling their players. You know, we went up there two years ago and won two out of three, and 
Last year, I think we swept them here, and I'm sure they're going to use that as motivation. And, you know, Chad and his staff do a great job. Schmidt's been, you know, as good as anybody in our league on Friday night. You know, they got a kid named Webb. He's got a great arm on Saturday, and, you know, they got a freshman they really like on Sunday. They got a, a difficult lineup. It's a difficult one to navigate through because they, I think, top four hitters are, are left handed or switch hitters, and then they, they, they mix in another one, I think, in the six hole. So you got five left handed hitters, and they're very aggressive always, you know, at, at the plate, especially at home. You know, so we got to make some pitches early to count, and they're playing very good defense, and you know they're playing well. I mean, and you know, to to get through the the first eighteen games or so in our league, and they you know they lead the SEC. You know, they got a game up on us. So in order to have a record like that in our league, you got to play consistently well, and they've done that. So we'll it'll be a great challenge for us. But like I said, I, I'm I'm looking forward to these last stretch and seeing how our team responds on the road and and see how we play in some tough environments and. Like I said, it, it'll do nothing but help us, you know, you know, prepare for postseason. I, w- I want to finish with the guys that, that finished for you because we, we don't a lot of times talk about the back end of the bullpen. You mentioned Sean, what he was able to give you on, on Thursday night. Kirby's just been an asset the, the entire year. Dane's been put in a bunch of different roles, and you've just you've got a lot of guys that are they're filling roles and doing some really good things in that bullpen. You know, it's it's always easy to talk about Sean Puck and and Fido and you know the new guys, kind of fresh names like Jackson and Brady. But for a guy for a guy. Like like Sean Anderson, who has put in his time, put in the effort, and been a great team guy for two years, to finally kind of put things together and to have the role he has and for him to perform the way he has, from my standpoint, it's very gratifying. And I, and I feel the same way about Dane. You know, he's put his time and effort. You see the maturity. You see the growth. The body has changed. Both of those guys have put themselves in very good positions you know, for the draft moving forward. I know it's not always about the draft, but let's face it, at a place like Florida, kids turn down some money to come to school, and um, you always want to, you know, put them in a better position three years later. So to see them grow and to see them perform like they have, it's been very gratifying for me, and I I couldn't be more excited, you know, for the both of those guys. Few athletes in any sport at any school can compete with the remarkable resume put together by gymnast Bridget Sloan, who capped her All-American career with an all-around title at the NCAA Championships last week in Fort Worth. As the senior prepares to move on to the next stage of her life and career, Gator Vision Shelby Gunath asked her when she decided to become an elite gymnast. 2007, I had jumped up to the senior division from the junior and I was a nobody. No one had any idea who I was and I was an alternate to the world team. After that world championships, I was sent to the 2008 Olympic test event in Beijing. That's when it was kind of like, I want to do this. I want to be an Olympian. I don't want to be an alternate. I want to be an Olympian. And I don't even know how to describe the feeling that went through my body when I realized I had turned my dream into a reality. Now, you were an Olympian in 2008 and the 2009 all-around world champion. So what was it about the University of Florida that stood out to you? When I made the decision to come to Florida, I think I shocked a lot of people. I think everyone thought I was going to go somewhere else. And to be honest, I thought I was going to go somewhere else. But I came on my visit here, and as soon as I stepped foot on campus, I knew this was where I was supposed to be. And that's what I found here is that not only is gymnastics a great sport in college, but here at the University of Florida, it's a fun sport. I mean, UF really put the fun back in the sport for me, and I am forever grateful for that. So you committed to the University of Florida, and they hadn't won a national championship yet. So what was it like your freshman year you helped your team earn that first national championship? 
Before I came, I said, I want to go to a program that just needs a little extra oomph. I want to go to a program that is striving to succeed every year. It's not just complacent on how they are, but they just want to get better. I mean, my freshman year team was, we were stacked with talent, just absolutely stacked with talent. And my class, we were that little extra that they needed. And it was incredible being a part of history like that. I mean, we had never won before. And then my class comes in and then bam, we're national champions. We were SEC champions and then we we're national champions. Sitting here right now, looking back on it, can you believe that there are three national championship trophies behind you? I came to college with the mindset that I'm going to do gymnastics for myself and help my team. I did not come to college and have a checklist like, all right, I want to win this year. I wanted to win this. I want to get a 10. I wanted to just come here and fall in love with gymnastics again and help my team accomplish their goals. You've now had a few weeks to process your senior season. So kind of take me through the highs and lows of this year. Well, there's a little bit of a mix of both. Uh, I definitely had a lot of highs. I had two 10s on beam. That was pretty sweet. I had a 10 on floor. I also had some major mistakes. It was hard. I remember sitting in our little corral, and I'm just looking up in the stands thinking, it's been real. I mean, this is, this is it. This, this is my last one. And... It was definitely hard to process, but can't be mad. Yes, we are fourth in the nation. Not exactly what we wanted to be, but it's better than fifth. In our little team huddle right after the meet, I looked at every single one of them and I said, let this feeling sink in. Let this feeling overtake you and never let it happen again. We do not settle. We are not a fourth place team, so don't let it happen again. How special was it winning the all-around title your freshman year and then your last year? That was pretty cool. I just remember my freshman year, again, having no idea. And now I was like, well, I couldn't have gone out with any better title. Knowing that I did my job and I did what I could for my team, it, I mean, it really is special. The all-around title wasn't the only title you repeated your freshman and senior year. You were just named the Honda Award winner. What does that award mean to you? That was awesome. Now that I'm a little older, again, freshman year, I had no idea what the Honda Award was. Now knowing what it was, I mean, it's, it's really impressive and very cool to be honored for what I've accomplished. I mean, I've been through a lot. I've had a lot of ups and downs, and I've worked my butt off in the gym, outside the gym. And, I mean, I never thought that I would be sitting here with the NCAA titles, the national championships, and two Honda Awards. I, you if you would have asked me that my freshman year, I would have laughed and been like, I don't even know what all those are, so... Probably not. And here I am. I'm an Olympian. I'm a world champion. I'm a three-time NCAA champion. I'm a two-time Honda Award winner. I mean, that's pretty cool. We've talked about the tens and the trophies and the championships and the rings and everything you've accomplished. Do you have a favorite memory from your time here at Florida? I don't know if I could pinpoint just one. I mean, obviously, every championship has a very special place in my heart uh, because every single one was won very differently. First year, no one thought we could do it. Second year, we tied. The third year, we depended on Alex McMurtry, our little freshman, to just bring the heat, and she did. I mean, every single year was different, but there are so many memories here, and it's amazing being able to look back and know that all those memories will never leave. What is it like for you to walk through, not right now, obviously, because it's under construction, <laughs> but to walk through the gymnastics facility over there and see your pictures on every wall and to see the trophies, and what does all that mean to you? 
Looking up at the national championship wall and seeing my picture and everything under it, that's something that you don't see every day. And learning so much about college and how important the team is and how important individual accolades are, I mean, it's just really crazy to think of everything that I've been able to accomplish when I came into this sport just wanting to fall in love again. I wanted to go out there, I wanted to have fun, and I wanted to do my best and fall in love with gymnastics again, and that's what I did. Has it really hit you that your gymnastics career is over? I am well aware that every single athlete's career will come to an end. There is no one that can do it all their life. But it'll hit me probably come fall when everyone's getting ready for school and they're getting ready for practice. And I'm like, I'm getting ready for my job, hopefully, that I have. I'm going to go to work now. And that's, I think, that's when it'll really hit me. And I'll be like, well, gymnastics is done and time to find a new hobby. What does it mean to you to be a Florida Gator? To me, being a Florida Gator, it's something that I just have the utmost respect for it. Wearing orange and blue every day, if someone tells me that I can't wear orange and blue, I will get very offended because those are my colors. I am a Florida Gator. I am a three-time national champion. I am this, I am that, but I will always be a Florida Gator. Everything that I've learned all these four years has created me as a person. And all the championships, all the heartbreaks, that has formed who I am today. And being here, looking up in the O'Connell Center, seeing those three flags, that's what it means to me to be a Florida Gator. It means to excel not only in the gym, but outside of the gym. I'm graduating on Friday. That's what it means to be a Florida Gator. It means you're someone who always works through anything, any obstacle that's thrown at you, you take it and you run with it. A Florida Gator never gives up. We always strive for success and we're going to get it at all costs. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to Gator Tales on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher to make sure you never miss an episode. We'll have a brand new edition for you next Thursday featuring a preview of softball's senior weekend and more. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you at the draft.